Well, good morning. We're going to be in Romans 14. It's always good to be with you, Christ the King. Uh, I got my second COVID shot on Friday, and so yesterday was a little bit foggy, and I still feel a little bit in the fog, but I think I'm okay today. Um, Before we get into the scripture, there's a couple announcements that I'd like to share with with you all. Um, First, Pastor Manuel at Las Tierras Community Church, he uh, is leaving Las Tierras to go back into the mission field. And uh, the pastoral search committee at Las Tierras has put my name forward to be the next pastor at Las Tierras. And so on May 9th, the congregation will be voting uh, whether to install me as the pastor. And if they do, that will be starting in June. And so we're really grateful um, for this new season that we believe the Lord is calling us into. Um, It means that we get to stay in El Paso for a long time. Um, And Las Tierras is, uh, yeah, so we're really grateful for that. Uh, You may be asking then, okay, so what's going to be happening with RUF at UTEP? And I am really thrilled and excited to be able to share with you that uh, there is a, a young man uh, whose name is Eduardo Ovalle, and he is one of the students that I've been discipling for several years now. And he's graduating, and he is going to become the campus ministry associate with RUF at UTEP. Now, what that means is that uh, he has the opportunity to attend Covenant Theological Seminary online, working for his MDiv, and also working, doing 30 hours a week uh, at RUF, and so he's going to be able to see this ministry growing, and he, um, you know, he has seen, he did campus ministry at the community college and grew that ministry from five to about 30 students over his time when he was doing the, the campus ministry at the community college, and he is the best, the best man, the best guy that the Lord is raising up to continue RUF at UTEP, and so I'm really grateful for that, and uh, It's really important for both of our congregations, Las Tierras and and Christ the King, to support him and his fiancée in all the ways that we can. And so you're going to be getting to know him in in the future. And so I just ask that you would make him feel welcome when he comes to Christ the King and his his fiancée. It takes a big, big local church support to see RUF sustained. Um, And so if you do currently give to RUF, I'm so grateful for, for you for giving to RUF. And I ask and I would encourage you to please continue giving. Uh, and if you haven't started and you're interested in giving to RUF at UTEP, he, it, this would be a great time to start um, being a partnering with, with the ministry. And so with that said, I'm, I'm really just really grateful for you and for God's work in our midst in this season. And so let's pray. Lord, you have done wonder, wondrous things, wonderful things. And we thank you most of all that you have given us your word and that it is breathed out by your spirit. And so I just pray, Lord, that my words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight this morning and that we would see you, Lord Jesus, high and lifted up. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, Romans 14 um, is a passage about Christians disagreeing. And Pastor Brian Habig says the kind of the big idea of this passage, Romans 14, comes in two points. And it's this, that Christians, we disagree. 
But we Christians who disagree, we belong to the same master. Christians, we disagree, but we belong to the same master. Now, over the last five years doing uh, college and a lot of college and young adult ministry, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of weddings. So I've done a number of weddings in the last five years, and I've done uh, counseling, premarital counseling. And I know Chuck doesn't believe in premarital counseling. Only for $1,200, but uh, postmarital counseling makes sense because in premarital counseling, nobody's paying attention anyway to what you're saying. That's the point. Uh, but in premarital counseling, even in the, you know, the honeymoon stage of a relationship, guess what? Couples, we all disagree about lots of things. We disagree about uh, all kinds of things in a relationship. Like uh, in our marriage, we disagree about what direction you put the toilet paper, if it goes forward or if it's supposed to come backwards, right? Little things. More importantly, things. We, we, we disagree about how do, how do we relate to money? How do we approach family? What's our, our relationship to time, personalities? We grew up in different families that did things differently. Some, sometimes in, in relationships, we disagree about unimportant things. They're just annoying, like the toilet paper. Sometimes it's more important things, like how do we parent our children? Sometimes it's even, but it can be really essential things, like our views about God. One of the things when Maths and I have done premarital counseling, one of the things that I think is an indicator of strong health that I've seen is actually the fact when couples disagree well. It's disagreeing well. And if there's no disagreement, it's because they, maybe they didn't, you just met each other and didn't actually know each other yet, or else it's probably somebody's just not being honest. You see, mature couples, mature relationships have disagreement. And they disagree well. And the same is true for us in our life together as the body of Christ. And this passage should help us disagree well. Because it just reminds us to recognize that we disagree. But we who disagree, we belong to the same master. And so first point, Christians, we disagree about many things. Verse 1 on this passage says this. Paul is talking to the church in Rome. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. You see, they have different opinions. Now, not to quarrel over opinions, it's, it's important for us to know what things are considered opinions and what are not opinions. What are, what are the essentials of our faith and what are not? This is important for us to know. What Paul is talking about is disputable matters on which Christians disagree. So he's not talking about Romans 1 through 11, which he's talking about. He's not talking about the very content of the gospel. He's not talking about our justification by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about the resurrection of Christ from the grave bodily. These are not opinions that he's saying that we can quarrel about. There's different things that he's talking about. It's not even the, a matter of the Apostles' Creed. These are things that we absolutely say these are essential. So what's ta- Paul talking about when he talks about referencing quarreling over opinion? Well, in context, Paul, I think he's talking about a couple things. Paul's talking about strong Christians 
and weak Christians as it relates to two major issues. And those can be classified as diet and days, the way they relate to diet and days. And so there are different opinions about diet and days, verses 2 through 3 and then verses 5, and I will read them right now. So look at verse 2 on diet. He says, one person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. You see, there's, there's a disagreement here about, about diet, about what they're eating. And then verse 5, they're also talking about conflicts on the days of the, the Jewish calendar and Sabbath. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And so there's a difference of opinion on the significance of the, of the days. And so we may read this passage and we just say, okay, so the strong are able, are able to eat anything, but the weak only eat vegetables. Uh, and you're sitting here saying, thank you, Lord Jesus, because I don't know what a vegetable is. <laughs> so I'm strong. Uh, and, and if that's the case, then everybody in El Paso, we're all strong Christians because we don't eat our vegetables in, in this city. Uh, understandably, we have to recognize that there is an important historical, cultural context to rightly understanding how this relates for us. So kind of going into it, we need to understand the background of this a little bit. The background we need to know is that the Church of Rome was a church that was not actually planted by Paul. He'd never been to visit there before. Rather, we have a pretty good idea that the church in Rome grew up in the cradle of the Jewish synagogue. See, around 30 AD, Rome actually had 13 active synagogues and a Jewish population of over 60,000 people. And so what we think is that when Peter preached his uh, Pentecost sermon, there were Jews who came from all over the diaspora. Some of them would have come from Rome, and they were baptized, and believe, they believed in Jesus, and they were baptized, and they went back to their places. They went back to Rome, and from there, the church grew up in the cradle of the, the Jewish Roman synagogue. And this is one of those powerful reminders that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, to the Gentile. And so what happens is in the early days of the Church of Rome, we believe that uh, um, it had a very strong Jewish identity. However, we know that in AD 45, the emperor, he expelled many of the Jews from the city of Rome. And there was an ancient historian who said that uh, the reason that they were expelled was at the instigation of Christus, or, or Christ, what we would say. So there were conflicts, and so the Jews were, were kicked out of Rome. And so what happened is the ethnic Jews had to leave the Roman church. And the minority Gentile um, Christians were able to remain. And so eventually, 10 years later, when the Jews were allowed to come back to Rome, they who were once the majority culture of the church now found themselves in a church that had become uh, Gentile in its leadership, Gentile in its feel. And so they find themselves as the minority. And, and now that the, the Gentile majority church is there, they don't have the same um, feelings about the, the Jewish calendar or the Old Testament food laws. And so imagine a Jewish Christian uh, is sitting down for a meal with a Gentile Roman Christian. 
who is now in the majority of the church. And the Gentile Roman Christian, he goes to the market and he grabs some fresh al pastor or some chorizo, some bacon and some barbecue, and he says, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful food, and sits down to eat it. And the Jewish Christian, he's been taught his entire life, this is unclean. This is against God's law. And even more than that, he knows that, that these meats that you've been gotten from the market have been sacrificed to idols. And so he can say, how can you eat this meat because it's dis- disregarding God and you're supporting a demon pagan, pagan sacrifice? In the same way, the Gentile Christian would say, well, God gave us all this food and, and we're free in Christ. And so it's not my fault that you can't get over your aversion about about." You know, barbecue. Or again, when it comes to the days, you know, Jewish Christians are preparing to celebrate the Passover because the Passover is the greatest redemptive story of all of God's people. And the, the Gentile Christians are, are like acting like it's just another Tuesday. And the, and the Jewish Christian says to the, to the Gentile Christian, you mean to tell me that you're treating the most important day like it's just another day? And the, the Gentile Christian says to the Jewish Christian, well, I'm, I'm coming to appreciate the, the significance of Passover and these things. But we celebrate, you know, Good Friday and Easter. This is what they're getting at. And here's the interesting thing. My guess is that if you would have asked both of them, the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian, are there any weak Christians in this church what would they have said? They said, absolutely them. They both would have said, yes, them over there. The, the ones who enjoy their meat would be saying, the vegetable eaters, that they don't understand their freedom. They're the weak Christians. And the, the ones who are saying, we're able to abstain. We are the strong. It's like in our families, you know, there's, we always say that there's the awkward uncle. And we all say, no, that, yeah, he's the awkward uncle. Um, but maybe I am. Maybe you are. And so the question that we have to ask us then is, are there weak Christians, weak ones, at Christ the King, at Las Sierras, in our city? And of course there are. And we want to say yes, and it's them. You're, you're, you're maybe even thinking of people right now, you're like, they are the weak Christians. I think Sinclair Ferguson, he looks at this passage and he describes it in a really, really, really good way. And if Sinclair Ferguson says it, then it's probably true. And Sinclair Ferguson says about this, the weak and the strong. Ferguson says, the weak have a strong conscience, while the strong have an instructed conscience. You catch that? I'm going to say that again. The weak have a strong conscience, while the strong have an instructed conscience. Remember, Paul's not talking about the important doctrines of justification and the resurrection, things like that. What he's talking about is that on these issues, many of these issues, uh, on disagreeable matters, the weak in faith are the ones that have really, really strong consciences about this is what needs to be done. On the, on the, as it relates to the days and, and the diet, 
the strong Christians have an instructed conscience. And I think there's a lot of points of disagreement where you and I can have strong consciences or instructed consciences. I mean, there's, so many, there's a lot of things that we can talk about in our context. Oftentimes this has been applied to our, our views about alcohol, about music, about dancing, about parenting, about public school, private school, Christian school, homeschool, all of those kinds of things. I think the big one, we know this, has been, uh, been particularly the way we've related to the pandemic in this last year, our views about that. And even more is probably our disagreements in political opinions. And I would say this, if you look at political issues and you can only see one side as being completely correct and the other side as completely wrong, you may be the weaker Christian as it relates to political opinions. If you have strong political convictions, you can only possibly imagine the dangers of the other side, you may be the weaker in in politics and opinions. Now, one of the tests for you and me, I think, when we think about being the weaker or the stronger and particularly being the weaker, is if we find ourselves questioning the legitimacy of the faith of Christians that we disagree with. The weak have a tendency towards judgmentalism. This is what Paul is saying in verses 2 and 3. Whereas the strong have a tendency towards despising the other for their less informed views, for their incapacity to see the complexity or the lack of Christian freedom. And so, one of the things I want to say from here is that we know that unity in the church, it does not mean uniformity. We disagree. We disagree about many things, important things. But for all of us, whether we find ourselves weak or we find ourselves strong, what we ought to do is to grow in our conviction of our beliefs and our opinions and in Charity and compassion. Verses 5 and 6, Paul says it this way. He says, each one of us should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. See, we really ought to be charitable with one another. Why? Because we are seeking. The Christian that you disagree with is seeking to honor their Lord too. And so for us, we must grow in our conviction and charity towards one another, particularly with those we disagree with. And this is really important, Paul. Paul is making the point. This is really important because... The next point is this, that disagreeing Christians, we actually belong to the very same master. If you look at the book of Romans, it's kind of like a boxing match uh, in a way. So Paul is having an imagined dialogue with a a partner, and it's like this going back and forth. And you and I have all had those like imagined dialogues where we're talking with somebody in our mind, and we always win, right? In your mind. But Paul has these like real knockout punches in this argument that come in verses 4 and verse 10. 
And I'm just going to read verse 4. And this is what he says. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld because the Lord is able to uphold him. The Lord is able to make him stand. This is his knockout punch in his argument. He's saying that you and I, we may disagree, but we belong to the very same Lord and master. He's saying, hey, 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 don't you worry about them. You're not the boss of them. The Lord is their boss. Just as he's the boss of you. And so you, with your strong conscience, are not to be worried about their faith. It's not, their, it's not your job. And the good news is that according to verse 4, this other Christian who thinks differently from you, who thinks differently, will be upheld, is what he says. For the Lord is able to make him stand. You see what it says there? It's not a a might be upheld. It's not a possibly will be upheld. It is he will be upheld. He will be. He belongs to the same strong master as you. And you think about it. What is it that upholds us? You and me, as Chuck has always said, it's not the strength of my faith. It's not the strength of my convictions. It is the Lord Jesus himself who holds us up. You and me together. What this is saying is that you and I, we are are actually slaves of Jesus. You know, that's Paul's favorite way of introducing himself when he writes. Romans 1, he says, I am Paul. He says, I, Paul, greet you uh, a slave of, the, of Christ Jesus. We're slaves to Jesus. We belong to him. He is our master. So to be a slave means that your life, it no longer belongs to you. Your life belongs to your master. And this is what he says in verses 7 and 8. What does that mean to belong to Jesus? What does that mean to have him as our master? He says very specifically in verse 7 and 8, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we will live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. We belong to him. He's our master. And think about how good it is to belong to Jesus as your master. Calvin put it this way, Oh, how much has that person profited who has been taught that he is not his own. That he has taken away dominion and rule from his own reason that he may yield it over to God. Because as consulting my own self-interest is the plague that most effectively leads to my destruction so also the sole haven of my salvation is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through myself, but to follow the leading of the Lord alone. I am not my own, but my salvation is that I follow, that I belong to him. It's good and beautiful to belong to Jesus as our 
our master. Because the fact is, we belong to somebody. We belong to somebody. And being a slave to Jesus is a slavery that is true freedom. It's a slavery that is true freedom. It's being captive to the one who is love, who knows what is the best for us. You see, if you and I, we belong to Jesus, we belong to God's family. We're adopted into his family, and we have God as our loving father. We belong. The NBA All-Star Game recently happened, and I saw this incredible scene where Julius Randle, who is the power forward and center for the New York Knicks, and he was playing in the All-Star Game, and this guy is six foot eight, 250 pounds. And in the All-Star Game, um, he's playing, and before the game, his like three, four-year-old little boy walks out onto the court. And as his little boy walks out to the court, Julius Randle, who's this all-star of all-stars, comes to his son, bends down with, and envelops him in this massive embrace and looks down at him and just kisses him and kisses him. And he says to his son, what's up, man? Are you, you having fun? And his little boy says, yeah. And with this unrelenting grip, he kisses his son, and he kisses his son, and he kisses his son. And he says, I love you, I love you, I love you. This is what it means for us to belong to our Father because of Jesus Christ. Our Father is the all-star of all-stars, and He holds you personally tight, and He says to you, I love you, I love you. And He doesn't let us go. As the song says, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give Thee back the life I owe, that in Thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. We give our lives back to the love that will not let us go. And I love the way Heidelberg puts it in the first question. What is my only comfort in life and death? Is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it goes even further and says, not, and He holds us up so that not a single hair from my head will fall except from the will of my heavenly Father who loves me. And this comfort also then gets to the tension at the heart of this passage. And it's a tension that is not a contradiction, but it's we hold them. And the tension is that we who will be upheld, we who will be embraced, will also be judged. We will be accountable. Verses 10 through 12 says this, and we're almost done. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The point is that you and I, we will each answer to our own master. I will answer to my master. 
And this even gets to the very purpose of the resurrection. In verse 9, he says, For to this end, this purpose, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. What does it mean to say he's, he's Lord both of the living and the dead? It means that Jesus died and lives again so that he would be the master of everyone. That's what he's saying. And so the point in this passage, what it should do for us, it gives us pause. It makes us pause and stop focusing on our brother, our sister. Because they're going to answer to Jesus. And consider ourselves. Because what matters for you, what matters for me, is that I will respond. I will answer. See, there will be a day when your life will be displayed on the Jumbotron. You see, the Jumbotron is that big screen in in games where uh, everybody sees the whole replay. It's all zoomed in, and everybody can see what happened. Our lives, everything we have done, will be portrayed on the Jumbotron. It will be streamed on the court of the All-Star of All-Stars, and every thought, every word, every deed that we have done will be made visible. And we will have to answer for everything we did that we should should not have done. And we will be made to answer for everything that we should have done, but did not do. It will be made seen. And we will give an account for every thought in which we despise another and misuse our Christian liberty. And we will also give an account for every judgmental thought in which we judged one another and created legalistic restrictions where Christ has given liberty. And this is the tension that is not the contradiction, is that our lives will be on display and judged in the Lord's court. But at the very same time, our Heavenly Father will hold us and embrace us and say, I love you, I love you. This is absolutely true for you and I who have repentant faith in Christ Jesus. If you want that to be the case for you, that you're going to be embraced and not merely judged It takes repentant faith. And what is repentant faith? Repentant faith is simply to say, Lord Jesus, I am not my own, but I belong to you. My life is not my own. I belong to you. And he will uphold you whether you're weak or whether you're strong because he's the author of our faith. He's the one who upholds us. And that's the point. We who disagree, some who are strong and some who are weak, we belong to the very same Lord, and he's going to uphold us. And so let's pray. Lord Jesus, your love will not let us go. And so we rest our weary souls in you, our weary, divisive souls. Help us to give you back our lives so that we may love with richer and deeper fullness, Lord. Knowing that we belong to you, please give us rest so we can grow in our convictions and grow in charity to one another with whom we disagree. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.